podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Stretty Cast. This Monday I'm joined by Leah, one of the leading writers of Stretty News, who has actually just joined their force on the paid staff, which I'm delighted to announce. Congratulations on that, Leah. Thank you. Hello, everybody. So, yeah, it's her first podcast and she's done some background work and getting us a great guest today with Kieran Maguire, who's a football finance expert and a university lecturer on the matter. Kieran, how are you keeping? I'm, I'm grand, thanks, Ryan. Um, ticking over. I'm desperate for football to return like we all are i i guess but uh you know ultimately it's, it's far more important that we're, we're all looking after ourselves and every and, and everybody else that's close to us just to get started and on the whole pandemic thing with football returning and we've seen now that league one and league two have have announced that they their seasons are cancelled but the championship and premier league will go ahead like one of my first questions when we were hitting this or after hitting this pandemic was with the premier league are they going to prioritize wealth over health and I'm kind of wondering if, if the lower leagues that don't make as much money from the broadcasters if, if they're deciding that we're not we're not going to go ahead with the campaign do you think that it's the right decision for football to come back or is it financially motivated oh it, it's very much driven by the finances um you know no, no lives are going to be saved by football coming back uh, you know, th- 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 there is the potential for people to contract the disease, to to pass it on to others, um, and, and for them them to take it home. So th- there is an associated health risk. It's it's not a high one by all accounts, uh, given the given the age profiles of the players. Uh, but realistically, we're we're probably talking uh, by coming back, the Premier League has saved it half saved itself half a billion pounds. Uh, so that was always the driving force behind the decision. Just before, it, sorry, Leah, go ahead, go ahead. So I was just going to say, how how close did football come to being in real trouble, Kieran? Um, financial. Well, it, it is in real trouble. That's the problem. It's certainly in the lower leagues. But as far as the Premier League was concerned, um, I, I think uh, some some clubs would have been in a very, very precarious position had the decision not been made to return because as it stands, they're going to have to give the, the TV companies around about £300 million back. Um, that would have been closer to £800 million had had we had no return at all. Um, and then, of course, you've got refunds to season ticket holders. You've got um, sponsors and commercial partners who wouldn't have been happy either. So the the total potential bill would have exceeded a billion pounds between the Premier League clubs. As we know, some of them are richer than others. Some of them have got sugar daddy owners. Some haven't. Um, I'm I'm more concerned about lower league clubs going out of business, but it certainly would have made things a lot tougher for for clubs in the Premier League. When you look at Tramir, Kieran, and you look at the redundancies following the announcement that they're going to be relegated and a season that was just cancelled 
with about I think seven, five or seven games left to play. And it depends on who you speak to because last week I interviewed Port Vale manager John Atsky and he made it clear that he thought this decision was fine. He was he didn't seem too kind of worried about the financial impacts of it. But if you spoke to someone at Tranmere, I'm sure the the perspective would be completely different. Very much so. In fact, I had uh, Mark Palios, the the Tranmere owner, on on my own podcast last uh, last Thursday. Um, and, and he was saying that the cost of the club is, is around about a million pounds. Um, but, but clearly, it's also going to be a setback because their ambitions to get into the championship. So that's going to put that back for at least another year. Um, and and he, he sort of inferred at the time that uh, some tough decisions were going to be made. And then six hours later, uh, the, the, the redundancies were announced. So. For those, for any clubs which are dropping down a division, especially is the fact that you're not sure exactly what you're dropping down into. Because is football in League One and League Two going to take place next season? Because the costs of taking players out of furlough, the Mm. costs of putting matches on, the costs of transport and things of that nature, um, when you've got no chance of money coming in through the turnstiles and and you're only getting a very small slice of the TV money, um, that really doesn't make football viable um, as a product in Leagues 1 and 2. Yeah, you look at the likes of Fulham in the Championship now, and I think the average ticket price for a match is something like... 50 to 60 pound which is just crazy and when I was speaking to the Port Vale manager he made it very clear that they're, they're not all that concerned I know we're going to talk about transfers in this conversation but those clubs are not all that concerned about that they're concerned about getting fans back into games that they don't they don't want games behind closed doors because they, they can't make money they're they're operating then at a, at a massive loss but very much so uh, you know that the, the the, the Premier League TV deal is is an amazing piece of negotiation by the Premier League. It brings in three billion pounds a year. But if if you're a club in uh, in League Two, in, instead of getting a hundred million plus, uh, you, you know, you, Liverpool I think got close to quarter of a billion pounds from TV um, last season. But if you're in League One and League Two, you're on between one and one and a half million. Um, so the, the TV money isn't significant and therefore you become far more reliant upon match day income in, in getting the fans through the turnstiles um, and, and making money from merchandise and catering. Uh, but also your, your sponsors are likely to be local as well and, and they're not going to pay for advertising uh, you know, on, on the pitch side if there's nobody there to watch the matches live. Absolutely. Leah, do you want to weigh in? Yeah, I, I find it... I find it fascinating how the sport as a whole has been allowed to operate at what is clearly a very um, unstable, you know, financial position. I, 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 it shouldn't have taken, in my opinion, a, a pandemic for these, uh, you know, situations to be highlighted. I, I think I think that's fair comment, and, and I think therefore you, what you need to do is to look at the people who are making the decisions. Ultimately, both the Premier League and the EFL are owners' clubs, um, and, and owners have voted for these rules. So there is a wage cap in League One and League Two, but it doesn't work particularly well. Um, there, there are there is a form of financial fair play in the championship, but the clubs in the championship lost over six hundred million pounds last season. And remember, that was a season when we didn't have COVID nineteen to have to deal with. When they tried to tighten up the rules, every, every time they do that, the the owners vote to make them looser. 
Um, so they seem to have sort of no no regard for the long term stability and the long term existence of the clubs. And, and effectively, every year, what they're trying to do is, is a bit like playing blackjack and, and twisting on 19. And, and most of the time, they, yeah, they are in danger of going bust because the numbers simply don't add up. I know they like to tell us that we live in a democracy. And the, the, the big thing about the big voter and the EFL and the League 1 and League 2 clubs coming together, the, the clubs casting their vote, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Because what I was thinking was, as, as a league, as a governing body, can they not make them decisions themselves? Why what, Why do all these clubs have to be consulted? Because you look, at, we mentioned Tranmere and we mentioned other teams that might be financially more stable and might be better league positions. They all have different agendas about football returning and even from a financial perspective as well. Do you think the governing body should be kind of more so saying this is what we're doing as opposed to having a vote on every single thing that pops up? Um, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Um, if, if you compare the way that uh, the EFL and the Premier League operate compared to the likes of the NFL, where you have a governor yeah. you know, and, and one person is sitting there and making the rules. The problem with football ownership is that the owners individually have got huge egos and they don't want to give power away to somebody else. They're all operating in, in their own best interests, which which is understandable. Um, and certainly when, when you talk to the likes of Mark Palios, he says, I, I understand why uh, Matt, why they decided to curtail the league um, last last week because of the costs of continuing. If you think about it, taking players out of furlough, then you've got your testing costs, then you've got your match day operation costs with no money coming in. That That does make sense. Um, but why do we need to be? Why do we need to have relegation, especially in in the circumstances of Tranmere, when they were three points behind with a game in hand on the club ahead of them, um, and they've just come off the back of three victories? So they they were they were an informed team, and and part of the reason for that is that the the clubs in the Championship feared that if you stopped relegation in League One, then it could be that the clubs in the Premier League might vote to have no relegation and perhaps no promotion as well. So therefore, the the, the clubs in the Championship voted uh, Tranmere out of League One because it was in the best interests of the championship clubs. They didn't give a hoot about their fellow clubs. Uh, and as for this talk about the football family, it, it's sheer nonsense. Mm. Yeah. Hidden, like, you know, individual agendas. Yes. Yeah. So you know, uh, the, the clubs that wanted to continue, if you take a look at the likes of uh, Peterborough which it, and, and uh, Ipswich and Sunderland, they were they were just outside the playoffs. Yeah. So clearly they were hoping, and rightly so, that with a with a, a good run of form they could sneak into the playoffs, get into the championship. And and the difference between championship TV money um, and uh, that of League One is around about six to seven million pounds, mm-hmm. which could you know you could effectively you could double your income as as a small club such as Peterborough. Just to, to bring the conversation more focused to Manchester United, if you're reading loads of reports uh, about transfers in the past few weeks, kind of just kind of scratching your head and you're kind of wondering, but you want a bit of realism. And at the moment, clubs aren't going to be spending the money that, that they spent previously because they haven't got it, would, would say it's seasons being curtailed and so on. But a lot of people are claiming that Manchester United are one of the clubs that should be okay to spend why is that here and why are people suggesting that Manchester United are, are okay where at, during a time the Real Madrid say are in financial problems you look at Barcelona another club big club in financial problems why are Manchester United seem to be doing so well despite being like having so much debt 
Well, well, debt debt's not a problem if if you if there's if you know, if there's no uh, no short term payments due. And, and Manchester United, whilst it's got debts of of uh, around about five hundred million, um, those debts aren't due to be repaid for another you know for many years. So all they have to do is to pay the interest on the debt. If if you take a look at United's finances, they had about a hundred million pounds in the bank um, when they published their last set of accounts. So that was at the end of March. Um, since then they've uh, they've They've arranged an interview, sorry, sorry, interview, uh, an overdraft um, of around about 140 to 150 million. So therefore, they've got money in the bank to go out into uh, into the transfer market. Uh, I mean, just uh, I think two weeks ago, they were able to pay pay the uh, shareholders uh, 11 million pounds in dividends. So if they can afford to pay. Um, you know, to shareholders who, let's face it, they do absolutely nothing for the club. Um, these large sums of money, there, there is uh, there is the opportunity to go out into the transfer market as well. Manchester United, whilst they come in for criticism from some people for their very successful commercial arm, right now that re- that very successful commercial arm um, is is doing wonders because the commercial partners are, are still in the main paying. Um, and you look at United, you know, two hundred and seventy five million pounds is coming in um, from sponsorship deals. If it, that's twice the income totally of of clubs such as Palace and Bournemouth and so on um, in in the, the lower reaches of the Premier League. So so United do have uh, a lot of money coming in, which will allow them in theory to compete in the transfer market this summer. Do you so think from that perspective you think um, you think United are, is that? they're in a unique position is there another team which can rival united in that sense um yeah i think i think you've got to look at the ownership models within the premier league itself i mean united is run as a business first and foremost um and that's that's not a criticism of you know i've i've I played for Trafford Cricket Club for 40 years, so half my mates are, you know, United season ticket holders. That's not a criticism of United fans; it's, it's a criticism of the Glazers, if anything. Mm. Um, the focus is on on making money, um, and therefore they they might be a little bit cautious about the the level of extra debt they take on. But they're still in a relatively strong position. Um, if you if you have a different ownership approach, so if you compare uh, United to Chelsea. For example, um, they're they're not run as a business; they're they're run as, as a toy of a sugar daddy. Yeah. Uh, so so that's why they're able to go and side Timo Werner. Um, but you know, last week in the middle of a global pandemic with thousands of thousands of people dying every day, um, the Chelsea owner went out and spent 150 million pounds on a painting. So that's mm. how divorced from reality um, some of the owners are. I think that's something that's been told in some of the reports about United being linked with Sancho and other players, that United are wary of say, spend, overspending on a player because it, it looks quite bad during times of a pandemic. But when push comes to shove and we're, and we're in the middle of a maybe deadline day, I don't think if the, if the money's there, United will care. You know they, they they'll spend it to, to get in that star player they're hoping to get. But I just think right now you're you're talking about people going to spend big big money on transfers. I can't see many big deals this summer among among all the top clubs. I I can see it being very very different market. Maybe more young players being pitched for over from the Bundesliga and so on that haven't got big transfer fees. And you th- I think yeah, I think I'm- a lot of clubs might start adopting the Borussia Dortmund model that we've seen in recent years, which has been a massive success. 
but very much so. Um, and I can certainly see Premier League clubs um, looking at the the overseas transfer market because with with the changes to regulations um, as a result of the uh, of the UK departing the EU, it's going to be that much tougher to recruit young players from overseas unless they are um, unless they have international caps. Um, so therefore, this summer, whenever this summer's market starts, and I think the latest talk is that it will be running from August to October, yeah. um, you, you will see recruitment. But I don't. I, I agree with you entirely, Ryan. We won't be seeing many big ticket signings, um, with the exception of transfers from a big club to a big club, uh, because the, the smaller clubs will simply. Um, they will be desperate for cash and therefore they're more inclined to um, accept lower offers. Uh, you know, if, uh, if, if, if United were trying to sign Bruno Fernandes in, in the summer window compared to the, the January window we've just had, they wouldn't have paid. Uh, was, was it Porto? Was it Benfica? I, can't, I always get the Porto. two mixed up. Yeah, they, they, they would have paid half the amount because Portuguese clubs are far more reliant upon player sales than any other division um, in Europe. Um, and, and as a consequence of having no matchday money coming in and a relatively weak uh, broadcasting deal, any cash coming in would, would be welcome. And I, I think United would have picked up Fernandes um, for somewhere in the region of you know, 25 to 30 million. Yeah, I, t- I think their chief executive actually passed a comment on that not long ago, saying f- very similar. But just touching on Ed Woodward um, as, a, as a businessman, you often read even tweets, and you know, you get there's a lot of heated tweets you see about Ed Woodward, but you often hear, good businessman, not a football man. And it almost has become kind of cliched when we're, when we're reporting about him. And I, I don't quite get it, because before we came onto the call, I did explain to you that when I'm reading about, say, football finance, a lot of it goes over my head. I'm not good with numbers, and all I see is football. So when people say good businessman and they talk about his his work on the commercial side of things, that's fine. But also I kind of feel that he is, at the end of the day, a glazer puppet in the way he, he structured the deal. Do you think there's more so that than, than him being an individual good businessman? Is he, is he lucky to be in the job he's in? Um, I, I think he won the trust of the Glazers in 2005 um, when, when I think he was at one of the banks who were advising them um, and, and they felt that he was very professional. Um, and if, if you talk to, to people at United and, I, and I've got to, you know, I've I lived in Manchester for 40 years. So I've, I know people who work there. I, I know people who have connections there um, and they'll always say that he's he's very fair. He's very friendly. He's very personable. Yeah. Um, and from a pure business perspective, um, I, I think he, he can't really be faulted from from that particular angle because he he's as you rightly said, he is sort of the the uh, the interface between the sort of the fans. He takes all of the flack uh, on effectively to be the face of the Glazers. Um, United have delivered profits. They've delivered dividends for shareholders. If you take a look at the share price of the club, you know, it's, it's increased in value from when the Glazers took over. It was, you know, they bought it for just under 800 million. They could sell for three times or four times that amount now, even in a pandemic environment. So fr- from that point of view, um, it, it's not a problem. Just to, um, just to ask you a question on that, Lee, as well from a more kind of fan perspective is before... Ed Woodward got his role when he took over from David Gill. 
and he obviously before that he, he had worked on the deal to help the Glazers take over Manchester United but as a fan we didn't know all that much about him and he was kind of under the radar and I, I, I kind of thinking now that he hasn't done that much good work on, on the football side of things it was probably a mistake to give him that promotion because it, it probably brought more negative press to the club in the past few years then if they appointed maybe someone else that people didn't know about that wasn't involved in, in the actual initial takeover. I don't think there was a transitional period with him. I think, you know, Gil left um, with Fergie, didn't he? And, and you know, Woodward's tried to come into that role and, and fulfil, you know, some pretty big boots. And it's almost like they didn't give him like a shadow period into the role. That's how I, that's how I feel about it. Um, I mean, United are crying out for a director of football, no doubt. Um, Woodward, great businessman, um, like you just said, you know, I think any business in the world would have him on board as a as a numbers man. But in terms of of what he's actually bringing to the the field, you know, the nuts and bolts of the game, nah, not it's not been um, it's not been up to scratch in my opinion from a fan perspective. Yeah, and it, it, I, I think, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Karen. I, I think it's very dangerous in any business, especially one the same, say, yeah, the size of United, to have the the chief strategist, which was Sir Alex, as well as the chief running the business, which mm-hmm. was David Gill, to have those leave at the same time and replace them with people who are relatively inexperienced yeah. at that level of business in David Moyes and Ed Woodward. You know, I, I, I teach at university. I would say, well, this is classic strategy of how not how to get it wrong. Yeah, yeah. So that's 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 what we meant by a, like a no shadow period. Like they, they didn't it wasn't a transitional period. It was just one out, one in. Yeah, I suppose too. Like the, the the big problem, I know, it turns on finance as well. Is we we we've looked at kind of transfer reports and when when players go and you get kind of the background story after a deal is completed. But Fred signed for Manchester United under Jose Mourinho, and it was kind of discussed that he had met with or his agent had met with with Man City and had met with Manchester United, and the difference in terms of the meeting was that. City were kind of talking about the the football side of things and what kind of profile of player they were looking for and they had certain things mapped out. Whereas when he met with Manchester United, it was more so kind of about branding and about short sales and about making how much money they can make off him within a year or two. You know, so you mentioned United are run like a business and absolutely most of the big clubs are. But I, I I do strongly believe they haven't quite found that balance yet and I think they're working on it because. The publicity in which they've received during this pandemic in particular um, has been at largely positive. They've donated, the foundation's donated over one million to, 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 to fundraisers and stuff throughout the pandemic. So the, that sense of things is much improved. They're helping the community. But I still think they're a long way off getting the right balance between business and, and a, a community as, asset. Yeah, no, nobody sees Manchester United as a community club. Yeah. Um, and I think that's an area which they need to address, as you, as you rightly say, um, you know, on, on, a, on a corporate level, the, the fact that they, they straight away gave refunds to fans who traveled to to the, the match that was called Dusk, off for the year. Yeah. Um, you know, that that was really good. The fact that they committed to paying their um, their, their part time staff for the remaining home games, even if they weren't taking place again, the right thing to do. They didn't they didn't take the furlough approach. You look at the damage that both Liverpool and Spurs did in terms of their relationships with. So, so United got most of the stuff right. There was um, also, I, um, I, sorry, Kira, I was just going to say there was also um, 
a report where United have cancelled, um, they've wavered loan fees for lower league clubs as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that was, was it Burton, Bolton and Hearts? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you know I, and I've reported on all of those stories as far as, you know, the, the football finance show is concerned. Um, you know, and you know, I, I've, I've not got a dog in the fight because I don't support United or City. Um, so it's, it's not an issue for me. And I, and I just try to look at the, the positives and the negatives. But they've, I think they've scored an occasional own goal, um, you know, such as paying out these dividends to the shareholders. Doesn't, doesn't look too clever. Well, it doesn't um, look clever when you when this also happened during a transfer window last year when United were kind of nearly bulking at the price of signing Harry Maguire and then a headline pops up saying that Darcy Glazer has received 11 million in dividends and you're kind of scratching your head and then reports are popping up saying there's 10 million in a disagreement between Manchester United and Leicester over a top centre back. You know, that doesn't add up to a football fan when a club is struggling to get a deal over the line for a player the fans really want yet Darcy's pocketing 11 million that could do the deal, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and yeah, United eventually paid the asking price. Um, Leicester were in a position to play hardball. Um, and again, in terms of recruitment, um, you know, my understanding is broadly similar to what you said in respect of Fred, that United's was very much focused on, we want to be seen as the club paying, you know, having the world record signing um, because it's good publicity for us. Um, it wasn't necessarily for, for football reasons, and, and that's why City dropped out of the bidding. Do you think that will change now? With the conversation we're having on, maybe clubs don't, don't, don't want to look to be excessively spending, even if United have the money during this stage, it, it, it might not look well. But do you think United are going to go into deals thinking we want to break the transfer record year after year now when there's not going to be necessarily any need to? Transfer values are going to go down. And no, it's, it's very oh, much, I, I very much every, a buyer's market now as well. You're, you're absolutely right, Ryan. No, the, the, world, the world has changed over the course of the last few months. Um, splashing the cash is no longer, I think it'll be seen as quite vulgar. Uh, hmm. You're going to have millions of people unemployed as a result of this pandemic. Yeah, we're just starting to see the, the, the job losses being announced in all different types of industries. Um, and therefore, it it would be, I think it would be ugly, really, to be to be seen to be spending ridiculous amounts of money on footballers um, just to go and break records. Um, there will be bargains as well this summer. Yeah, I agree, Kieran. I, I was just going to say, do you think um, do you think that this season, this this next sort of twelve months, do you think it's going to set a precedent for football in the long term? No, no. F- football football is very short term industry. Once, mm. once uh, you know, as, now I think we're all working. I think in, in the back of our minds is that there is going to be a vaccine, you know, that we, there is going to be some some return to pre-pandemic living in in the sense of mass gatherings, of being able to go to the, the cinema, the theatre, the football ground, to watch sports, to be able to drink in pubs, eat in restaurants. So if, if, if that does return, and I think we've got to work on that assumption, um, the money will start returning to football. And, and what we see with football is that money in, very quickly leads to money out so it will be driven by by income and income comes from three sources those those commercial deals for which we've praised united they have been very successful um the the money coming from match day sales um, and the tv deal itself Mm. do you think um do you think that clubs will um implement things uh, sort of from here on out in, in case an event like this ever happens again so things like um extra clauses in contracts things like that 
I, I think they will uh, try to. Uh, whether that will be acceptable to players and their agents, if 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 you're a re- if you are a top top tier player, mm. um, and you're going to have the, the the usual suitors, so United, Barcelona, Bayern, PSG, City, Chelsea, Liverpool. Yeah, if you've got a choice of five or six clubs of of that caliber, and one of them's got a pandemic clause in the contract they offer you, and another one doesn't, then you're going to take the the clause. Um, yeah, where which is in your best interests. So I can under from a club's point of view, you would expect that to be the case. I think from the players' point of view, their agents will be trying to get themselves out of that by saying, "Well, thanks, but no thanks." We'll, we'll, you know, if if that's if that's what you're offering, United, we've got to take a sixty percent pay cut if if the pandemic returns. Chelsea are offering to pay the full amount. We'll go to Chelsea instead. But yeah. ultimately, you don't think it's going to be a forced. It's not going to be forced uh, upon clubs to do that. At at the top level, and you know, we are talking about the elite in mm. Europe. I, I suspect not. Um, mm. As you drop down the the football pyramid, um, I think there's a greater chance of it taking place because all of those clubs are losing money to begin with. So it could quite easily become the norm. I think one of the big difficulties, just to relate to that question too, is football seems, we've been saying as as fans for for years that, oh, it's only a matter of time before football goes bust because as as the years go on, the club's spending way more money on on transfers and so on and wages. It's just crazy. And it's hard to get your head around that someone can earn so much money from kicking a football. But but these clubs make that money now, and and that's that's where the money goes. I do feel that it, it's gone to the stage that we're gone beyond any kind of sense. And in order to bring in something like kind of a cap on what players can earn, or having a, a clause in the contract to address these situations, the game has just gone barmy. It's gone way beyond that. And in order to, to, to take it back, you're going to have so many as as Kieran said. The big clubs, the the Manchester Uniteds, the the Man Citys, the Real Madrids, who basically go into negotiation situations and, and and try to find these kind of ways to get in the top players, maybe in the lower leagues, but I think at the top that would be very very difficult to implement. Well, that's the thing. I just think this is just going to create further division and and mar- you know a greater margin between the very top, the top, yeah. and then further down. Yeah, definitely. And the the whole thing too is with financial fair play. People would would argue that kind of from a competitive point of view it's not fair on, on, on clubs that are trying to get big but there's, there's something I wanted to ask Kieran with, with the whole Man City and, and, and the court case going on what, what's your views on financial fair play do you think there's any way that it can actually be a success or, because every year we're hearing about clubs like AC Milan we're hearing about clubs like PSG now Man City that are just not adhering to it so like it just seems like a mess year after year well, it, it is a mess because you've got you're trying to apply one set of rules across 50 or 60 different countries um, within UEFA as far as taking place in their competition is concerned. Um, and, and you've got different legislation in those countries. You've got different domestic financial fair play rules um, and, and you've got different cultures. And, w- and without wanting to sound too xenophobic, I, mean, I, I used to teach in Russia and, and Russia is an institutionally corrupt country. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you know, in terms of paying your taxes, in terms of the accounts, it's it's just pluck a number. So if you've got clubs from some countries where if you if you want to get a particular tax return, you just bribe a tax official, then you're going to do exactly the same 
um, when it comes to submitting your, your figures to UEFA, which which means that policing it and implementing and, and enforcing the rules becomes a real challenge um, uh, b- because you know these people are not used to playing by the rules which have been set by independent people in other countries um, such as UEFA. Should the Premier League be cautious of that very point you just made when it comes to the Saudi Royal family wanting to buy a Premier League club? Because we, you look at Man City and you look at Sheffield United and you look now at Newcastle potentially having orders from Saudi, you have actually state government bodies owning football clubs. You know, and, and that, that, that to me, that's, that's scary. That's, that's actually frightening, the thought of that. Um, again, and as well as that, I wanted to ask about there's people saying they're trying to block the Newcastle takeover. And I, maybe selfishly, I'm kind of asking, why didn't people block the the Glazer takeover? Yeah, well, well it, it's easy to point the the finger at other countries and try to take some sort of moral high ground mm. by saying everything domestically is uh, is fine. Um, but you know, we're going through you know in, clearly in, in in the UK at present, we're going through a bit of self reflection on the history of this country and the, and the in its uh, application of uh, human rights issues and things of that nature. Um, if, if we're going to say, well, you can't have a, a, an owner from Saudi, then th- how does that apply to the UAE? We've got Abramovich from Chelsea. We've got yeah. Fosunich from China. We've got Thai owners. You know, it's all, all of a sudden it becomes very, very messy because if the if the Premier League reject the the PIF acquisition of Newcastle, that's going to make things very awkward politically. Because Saudi Arabia is a trading partner of the UK, and, it, and it's got you know big exports. There'll be a lot of soft pressure, political pressure put on. Um, it it just becomes a nightmare. And of course, there was a lot of reported interests from the from the same members of the Saudi Royal family in buying Manchester United. There was numerous reports over the case maybe five or six months coming and going but they've they've died down with the the emergence of newcastle and that takeover do you think the glazers were ever interested in in selling to the royal family uh some of the glazers certainly yes some some of the glazers want to bail out there's no doubt about that but i think they have to make a by all accounts some sort of collective decision um, and you know, at least one or two of them are are very keen on running United uh, for the future. Uh, I think is it Joel uh, is is very yeah. keen um, on the club as a whole. Um, he feels that uh, th- there's a lot of there's there's a long way to go in terms of United's financial success, uh, and he wants to be part of it. I remember so I remember reading something after shortly after Malcolm's death, their father that there was a big disagreement between all the siblings that there was one or two that wanted to wanted out yes yeah there's i think that's uh, that's been reported in many sources um I, I don't know the exact nature of the agreement between the family i don't know whether it's family first and we make a, an overall family decision on this uh but at present there, there's no indication that they want to sell um you know as, as you said earlier they're picking up you know the thick end of 20 million pounds a year in dividends we don't know what's happening whether they get payments um as directors in the states as well on top of that uh you know Man- manchester united is a cash cow um and also you know it's it's the kudos 
of owning Manchester United. You know, everybody knows it's it's one of the leading football clubs in the world in terms of history and heritage and reputation and brand and all of these things. Um, and for the Glazers to be able to go out to a meeting with you know, with their friends and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I still own Manchester United. Yeah, everybody's heard <laughs> of Manchester United. Mm. Kieran, do you think um, do you think like with what we've just spoken about with how um, how different it is from the top, like the elites downwards? Do you think we'll ever? Is there a real possibility that we could see something like um, like a Super League? Um, you're you're both United fans. Who do you want to beat each season more than any other club? Liverpool. Um. Liverpool. Yeah, Liverpool, City. Leads if they get up to the Premier League, you know, yeah, and and that, um, so I don't think as fans that you want to give up your domestic league. Uh, person Adele, I don't know about you, but not for me. I want to, no. I want to go to Ellen Road, like. <laughs> <laughs> yep. No, absolutely no, not for me either. Um, it, it, it's another thing that you could discuss that we were talking about the lower league clubs, and. I was thinking the other day, if if we go through a period now that they they ended up taking their players off furlough schemes and they're tra- and they're training and fans still can't go to games and there's a big knock on effect of clubs having to shut down and communities being lost without their clubs, you could see maybe the lower league clubs in England having to to join up forces, maybe Championship and Premier League get together. Same with League One, League Two. And that's the kind of thing we're all talking here about, the structure of football. That requires a lot of work to change the pyramid of football. And I think it could actually have even a worse knock-on effect. And they need to, the big clubs, including Manchester United, need to look after um, the the lower clubs that are struggling because we can't have that kind of knock-on effect at all. I know you're mentioning people will look up, their eyes light up when they think of a league of say Manchester United, Real Madrid and all these superpowers but it's also you're losing an aspect there as well of enjoying a Champions League campaign which you know like, sadly get knocked out of when we're in it but then you might see a club like Borussia Dortmund or Atletico Madrid reach a final and to be honest with you in the past few years we haven't been in the Champions League as a football fan I've really enjoyed those stories um, and uh, the thought of having just an exclusive VIP league to me doesn't sound appealing and it's very much getting away from the aspect of community we spoke about Kieran. you know it really creates this kind of elitist um, VIP zone only and for, 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 the, for the overall scheme of football that can't be good I, I, I agree with you I, what, what I suspect the, the elite clubs want is to, is to have, it, have it both ways so what we will see in 2024-25 is some form of expanded Champions League. At present, you've got six group games, haven't you, in, mm. in, a, in a group of four. Well, you know, if, if we could guarantee 12 group games and then you've got you know, the round of 16, the quarterfinal, you, you could be talking about you know, 19 games in, in a Champions League campaign. The only way that that could be achieved is if we slim down the Premier League to 16 or 18 clubs. So therefore, United would be able to play Liverpool and City you know, and, and Leeds if they were there and Chelsea domestically. And also they would have the, the financial benefits of being in this expanded competition. Um, and you know, the, way, the way it's being discussed at present is that uh, very few clubs would be relegated from that that Champions League. So you're, you're practically, once you're there, you're guaranteed um, a Champions League campaign every season. Uh, so the club 
you know makes an awful lot of money out of that um and and the fans get to see barcelona and real every year as well as playing against liverpool um and manchester city and chelsea the downside of course is that if you are a smaller club you know a mid-tier club west ham everton newcastle you know forget it you know you're you're you're, you're just playing for scraps every year and yeah, I personally, I, I don't, I don't like the uh, the prospect of that at all. I mean, okay, I'm a United fan, but I'm a football fan first and foremost, and I enjoy stories like Sheffield United this season. You know, they were, they were the real surprise package, and you know, I found myself at points sort of like you know, sort of cheering them on. You know, I, you know, I want them to do well. I think when you start dividing it up, so you've got a clear gap between the top and and the middle, the, the, there's no incentive there for those clubs yeah. to. Um, you know, do well. But see, what's the point? What's the point in even owning one of those clubs that exactly. are, that are in those situations? Because I was only speaking to someone the other day who's who's launching a, a professional lower league club in England, and the whole the reason why he didn't do a Sunder League club is because there's not really much further you can go from from being a Sunder League club. You can win the league every year, but you don't go that step further. There's there's, there's no initiative to, to even do more work. So he set up a small lower league club and his aim is to always have an ambition, always to, to go towards something. If you bring in a system like that, the likes of, say, Everton or, or, or Sheffield Wednesday or United, the whole lot, all the clubs, there's no initiative. They, they, they can only get so far and then it's a dead end because when you hop over the wall, then you've got Manchester United, you've got Liverpool, you've got Arsenal, Chelsea, and they can't get over that wall. So, like, mm. what, what's the incentive even to run a club like that? Because you can only go so far. I, I agree with you entirely. Uh, but the if, if you listen to Javier Tebas, you know, who's, who's, who's head of La Liga, he was complaining um, last season, well, he's complained this season about Atalanta being in the, in the Champions League because he says they're not, they don't deserve to be there. They're not big enough. Um, and, and that really is an insult because you know I, I can remember Nottingham Forest winning the the European Cup twice yeah. in a row. Um, you, you remember Porto and clubs of that nature, uh, Ajax last season, uh, getting to the semi-finals of the of the Champions League from from a relatively small country. So this this is the fear that the big clubs are simply just going to try and carve up all of the money for themselves, mm-hmm. and uh, for the rest of you, you know, eat cake. Yeah, that no. would be. That would be. In my opinion, that would be tragic for the sport. Well, it it would be tragic because you look at the bigger picture. I know we could say we could try and act from a selfish point of view that we don't want this as Manchester United fans. But I'm also looking at it the the point of view that we send a lot of players out on loan um, to to Premier League clubs and abroad. And one of the things that I hope as a football fan that when a young player goes to a pretty decent club that he gets as much experience as he can get and that includes experience in the Champions League and so on and if you're creating even an even a great greater divide to prevent clubs from from playing in the Europe's most pre- prestigious competition you're probably shooting yourself in the foot at the same time you know you look at Chelsea loan out a lot of players United could do a loan out a few players like Angel Gomez maybe next season but he's a player that I think if you go somewhere like PSV or, or whatever, I'd love to see him in the Champions League because he, he gains so yeah. much experience from it. Yeah, I agree. So, so Kieran, just um, before, before we wrap it up, I want to touch a small bit more on the Newcastle takeover and, and to get, get your thoughts on that because every day we're pretty much hearing that there's someone trying to block it. Um, there's so many stories that you can dive into, but from a purely football, football perspective... 
and we mentioned financial fair play how how in order can they come in and and to do to achieve what they're trying to do is to make newcastle uh, a superpower in football well, they won't be able to do it. Uh, if, if the deal goes ahead, they won't be able to do it as quickly as Abramovich or Mansoor because of financial fair play. Um, now, but whilst Mike Ashley is universally hated um, on Tyneside because you know the fans don't feel he's invested enough money in the club, what he has done is he'll be leaving behind a legacy of a club that's got an awful lot of wiggle room in terms of financial fair play. Because it's you're allowed to lose um, £105 million over three years and, and Newcastle has been run at a profit. So whoever walks in there has got an awful lot of losses which they can rack up very quickly. Um, so I think they, they won't be able to go to the, the crazy level of signings that we saw under both Abra- under Abramovich and Mansour, but they could certainly be very competitive. Um, and, if, and if I was uh, Arsenal or Spurs, I think those would be the type of clubs that he would be targeting in, in terms of yeah, in, in terms of a new owner coming in and being able to blast those clubs out of the water um, in, in competing in the transfer market. So they would be in a relatively strong position. Um, they'd be able to get... Uh, I, I teach some uh, some kids from Saudi because uh, I, I teach post-grad courses which are mainly um, international in nature. Um, and they say they're all looking forward. Newcastle will become Saudi Arabia's football team. And, and therefore, you'll have all of that audience. You'll have people, uh, you know, football tourists coming across. You'll have sponsorship deals from the Middle East and things of this nature. So there is a lot of scope to grow Newcastle. Um, if, if the deal goes ahead, but it won't it won't be as rapid um, as the as, as the circumstances which surrounded uh, Abramovich acquiring Chelsea. Mm. You see that 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 it's an interesting one that if, if they do come in, that Newcastle will be the club of Saudi. But can you really say that about Man City since the Mansour takeover that they're not exactly you know in terms of fan base like they're definitely more worldwide and globalized globalized than what they were. But in terms of Qatar, they wouldn't exactly be the the only club that would prominence there, would they? No, but I mean, if if you go to UAE, it it is very they are they are high profile there, and also Saudi is much bigger than than both Qatar and UAE. So on you know, on the back of that, and and Saudi is an even wealthier country than those two other Middle East states. Um, I, I think they would be in a strong position um, on on the back of that. No. So, Kim, just, just sorry, just quickly, you, you, if if the Newcastle Saudi takeover uh, did go through, you would anticipate them at some point in the future to be a stronger financial force than the likes of Spurs and Arsenal. Is that right? Well, so, yeah, I, I think Arsenal of the big six at present are the most vulnerable of those clubs. Um, Spurs are run as a business first and foremost. Yeah, that theirs is very much the the United model. Um, I, I think Spurs have been very, very clever in the way that they've uh, developed their new stadium. And again, if, if we do return to normal, you know, the, the pre-COVID normality, mm-hmm. um, the fact that Spurs can sell NFL games, concerts, and everything's geared towards relieving you of cash um, will put them in a slightly stronger position than Arsenal. Um, but I, I do feel that that uh, that Newcastle, it's already a big stadium. They, they will be in a position to grow 
Arsenal is is uh, Arsenal is in a bit of a state at present. Yeah, it's not qualifying for the Champions League. It's not got an owner who wants to put money in. Um, but unlike United, it doesn't have the the, the big commercial success that, that United have. Mm. Well, absolutely, Kieran. That that was all really really good. Just before we we go, um, do you want to give your your book and your social media a quick plug? Oh, thanks very much. Um, I am. Uh, I've, I've got a book called The Price of Football, which is. It's trying to explain football finance for people who don't like finance, really. Um, it, it is a bit nerdy, but not very. Um, I, I run a podcast of the same name with uh, stand-up comedian Kevin Day. Uh, so that, that seems to be more popular than I ever thought it would be. Um, and uh, I'm well, Kieran Maguire on Twitter, and I post about football finance. Great. A pleasure to speak to you. Very good. The book is very good. I like it. Thank you. There, there's a good a good review already um but, but no look it, it, it's all it's really is worth following kieran on, on twitter because like like he touched on when it comes to releasing the annual figures and, and so from from united's accounts he, he offers some insight to people like maybe you might be like me in terms of anything financialist mentioned it usually goes over my head um but but kieran definitely sums it up nicely on twitter and he's definitely worth a follow and again go out and check out his book as well so that's this week's episode of Straight Cast. Hope you enjoyed it. And Kieran again and Leah, thanks for joining me. Thanks right. for the invite. Stay safe, folks. All right. Thank you, Kieran. Sports Social Podcast Network.